This episode is brought to you by Go Metals and their HSP Nickel Copper Sulfide Project in Quebec. You can find them at Explore 2022 in Montreal from October 3rd to 6th. You can visit them at their booth at the conference and at gometals.ca. I'm not popping the champagne bottles yet on this gold and silver rally. I know a lot of people are excited about it, but I mean, I say take a step back. Okay, we are back above $1,700, so we're no longer doing terrible. We're not even doing that great, okay? Like if you look at our numbers from the last, you know, two or three years, 1800, 1878, 1973, 1729, they're all higher. So the bleeding has stopped temporarily, I think we could say. We're, you know, $1,700 is a psychological level. Silver is back above $20 at $20.81. So a nice rally. But again, let me just bring up the silver here. It's like 25, 27, 23, 90, 24, 37, 22. I'm just looking at random numbers across the last two or three years while we track it. Okay, so now people are popping the champagne over $20.81. It seems a little premature. Let's put it that way. The bleeding has stopped temporarily, I think we could say, and maybe there's grounds for optimism here. So hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, where we are tracking everything and trying to piece all the puzzles together here. I mean, speaking of puzzles, the missing puzzle I find in the financial news in, I would say, the last six months is this idea, and it's not that it doesn't exist. It's this idea that we're in an economic war, the West against, let's call it, Russia and China, that we are in an economic war, at least with Russia. And I think considering everything that's going on in Taiwan, I think we can say with China as well. Okay. And I don't think that's a stretch. I don't think that's an overstatement. I think that's a fair assessment. But it doesn't really get discussed that much. And where I'm going with this is you see this issue with the gilts and, say, the Bank of England. You see this issue with Credit Suisse. I think these things are happening on their own. You know, I'm not so in my mind, foolish enough to say, oh, well, it's China and Russia that are doing that. I don't believe that. But I do think perhaps they may be putting their fingers on the scale a little bit, at least China. And even if they're not putting their thumbs on the scale or their fingers on the scale, say if there's a blow up at the Bank of England, I don't even know if they have gilts or whatever in their you know treasury that they can sell. But from their perspective, Let's say I'm right, and I think like, I mean, this isn't a secret. This isn't uncommon knowledge here that we're in an economic war, even though it's not discussed very much. But let's say I'm right, right? And you're Russia and China, and you're trying to defeat an enemy. But your enemy has the biggest military in the world. So how are you going to defeat them? Probably through economic means, because they're actually quite fragile and vulnerable right now, and they're suffering from an inflation shock. So what do you do? You put your thumb on the scale, but it's the perfect crime because you're just going to have policies that aren't helpful even that much because look at how much leverage they have over the West. 
Russia with its raw materials and China with its manufacturing. I mean, you just have to imagine yourself if you're China or Russia and you're getting together. I mean, surely this has come up. We have commodities that have global impact in their scale. You know, we could reduce our oil supply at any time, particularly as they drain their own strategic reserves. China has manufacturing of cheap goods that all of a sudden is just conveniently closed. Now, I think the COVID thing, in a sense, is real for them because of not using Western vaccines, and they can't have a whole bunch of people dying just in general. And they also like the control. So there's a lot of convenience here. And part of that convenience from the Chinese perspective is it's inflationary for your enemy. And your enemy is, you know, kind of running in circles here, trying to deal with this inflation problem, uh, you know, sacrificing their own economies, their currencies are starting to drop. So all you need to do is put policies in place that basically aren't helpful. All you have to do is stand out of the way and perhaps, who knows, maybe here and there, you put your thumb on the scale when something blows up a little bit. I don't know. So again, I don't want to sound like gold bug conspiracy guy, which is probably what I'm starting to sound like here. I just don't understand why we're not talking more about this economic war that we're in. Okay. And like, and you look at this energy situation. I mean, the pipeline exploding, whoever did that. I mean, I voiced my theory, which apparently most of the internet agrees with me on last week. And so as we step back, I, I mean, that's kind of where I'm left. And where does that leave you investment wise? I'm not sure, really. I mean, who knows? I mean, may, if we get some big crash, I mean, commodities are probably going down with the, with the ship. Right. So, and then are you going to stay in the dollar? Well, maybe that trade's overdone. Maybe it's got a long way to go. Anyways, investors don't know where to go. And I'll tell you what I think we do need to do, though. I think what's obvious, what we can know is we can't rely, say, on China or Russia, who, you know, the US is completely at odds with right now, and Canada and the West by extension. We can't rely on them to provide. Uh, cheap goods and raw materials. So we have to reshore. And I think we understand this, but I'm not sure how much this is permeating into the news, the financial media of even the political class that, you know, we need minds now. As Belinda Labatt says in this week's CEO Spotlight, we don't need just a few minds. We need hundreds of minds. And that is the mentality that we need to have here is we need hundreds of minds and I don't think we're there yet. It's sort of like I was saying with Stephen Stewart, I don't think we're on a war footing yet. I think we're still kind of acting like, you know, this and what I feel like increasingly is an infantilization by the Federal Reserve. Here we are, grown adults debating on half a percent versus three quarters of a percent. And this is going to dictate the direction of our portfolios for the next X years. I mean, it's kind of sad. Like, is this what we've been reduced to? So-called free people that we're now waiting to hear what daddy at the Federal Reserve is going to do. And then we can decide on how we're going to deal with that and where the, you know, if the markets that will decide Dad will decide if the markets are going to go up or down, and then we just have to deal with it. Like, it's all getting kind of sad for so-called free people. 
So to that point, uh, we had the Global Mining Symposium last week, and we had a Quebec leadership panel. And so in our bid here at the Northern Miner to help out, I'm going to feature this on this week's podcast, which is basically it's a guide to getting a mine started in Quebec, especially for explorers. It's a guide to start your mining project in Quebec. If you want to know how, this is your episode. If you're trying to figure it out, if you're looking at a project or a property or just want to do some staking, whatever the case may be, this is your episode. And it's moderated expertly by Henry Lazenby, Northern Miner Senior Reporter. So with that, I hope you enjoy this show. There is a ton of expertise. Lamico Metals, where Belinda Labat is CEO and director, is located in Quebec. So it's a bit of a Quebec special. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, here is Belinda Labat, CEO and director of Lamico Metals. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome back Belinda Labat, CEO and Director of Lamico Metals for this week's CEO Spotlight. Belinda, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Good to be back and give you an update on uh, on our activities. Well, it's great to have you back. I mean, you're a Canadian exploration company and you guys are doing working on some pretty I guess you'd say topical materials here, graphite and lithium. So tell us what's the update, what's happening at Lamico? Well, thanks for that, uh, Adrian. We are now 11 months in as a new management team, and we set out to do um, exploration work in both of our properties. And so what we have also done to really develop the strategy and vision of this business, which is to accelerate and increase the overall exposure to critical minerals in Quebec for Canadian solution is we acquired uh, claims in this year and we are also have completed an electromagnetic survey across those claims as well. So we really see ourselves as advancing the graphite project and lithium. Maybe I'll just share with you what we're doing in both and where we're at. So we completed just a couple of weeks ago a 79 drill hole program at the Graphite Project that we own 100%. And the objective there is to show investors that we have a resource there. Right now, we have 43 million tons of inferred materials. So to convert that into an M&I resource, what we need to do is extension drilling and infill drilling. We completed a total of 79 holes. That's just over... 13,000 meters, and we are now putting the results out. And what is very exciting about that is that we are seeing potential for graphite mineralization below the existing pit. So we call it a sub pit. And we're also in the last press release, we showed that the intercepts well over 30 meters up to 46 meters are showing double digit carbon. So 11%, 13% intercepts. This is important because what we want to show our end customer is that we have a, a strong resource here, that it is contained in that pit that we have been uh, talking about, which is the EV zone. We did do some work in the battery zone as well, which is a second pit, but the focus has been on the EV zone. So that that's really important for the end user, the OEMs, 
who are becoming increasingly interested in investing in upstream companies like ours because of the undersupply of the material. So turning our attention a little bit to the lithium project, that one we are earning our way into. We are close to meeting our 49% threshold equity ownership. We can own up to 70% of that project. It's in northern Quebec, right at the tail end of the Namaska lithium belt. And we've been doing soil and surface sampling there to look at anomalies of spodumene and lithium, tantalum, cesium. All of that is present uh, over a two and a half kilometer strike. And I think that what we are doing now is waiting for the results of that to come out to determine where we can put the drill rig. So a lot has happened over the summer operationally, and now we're you know, we're at the point where we're waiting for the lab results to come out. And at the same time, uh, talking with these new groups that are coming in, battery manufacturers, automobile manufacturers that are looking for product. And so meeting those needs. It is so fascinating. I mean, I've seen so many stories in the last few weeks just of auto manufacturers making deals with, you know, companies like yourself, or at least, you know, opening up dialogues with companies like yeah. yourself, you know, it's not even about price so much as just securing supply. I think you're right, because what we do see is, you know, there's discussion about price, but it's really not so much that. What we know is that graphite, when it comes out of the ground and you're concentrate, you have a whole variety of uses for that. And, and many of those are traditional uses. So what you really need to do is work with the automobile manufacturer, the battery manufacturer on the product that is needed, which is this anode grade graphite. And that's what we're doing. So it's a very different picture. It's working from the end product and then everything else will determine your plant size and how you go through permitting because you need to know that that end product is there. It sounds very specialized. So very interesting. So what's the, I guess, what's your roadmap here as we kind of, so you've been doing drilling. What next? We are working with our labs to get those results out, the assay results. And when we have that complete, we will be working with InnovExplow to start to put together an updated 43101 technical report. And that will take some time and take us into early in the new year. And with our Bourier project, it's very much about determining uh, where we go next with an exploration program. And I think we are also very keen to work with communities on developing social acceptability, which is challenging in the southern part of Quebec. This is not a known area for mining. But again, this is not mining in the way that we traditionally think about it. This is about Canadians securing a pipeline of natural resources for our new energy future. And we really need to think about what that looks like to the communities and to our First Nations. And that's a path that we're taking. A company of our size is always mindful of cash in the bank. So we have been diligently using flow through to accomplish all this drill work. And we will now be looking at the next steps for financing, for more metallurgical studies, advancing the claims that we have, advancing a story around consolidation. And that means talking with strategic investors as well, which we have been doing. And as you said, it's 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 moving so quickly. We didn't know Volkswagen would be coming in and potentially investing equity until very recently. So that opens up a whole lot of new conversation around 
what that equity investment could look like and how we work with a group like that or others. Yeah, fascinating. You have the jurisdiction as well. I mean, now tell me, uh, what is the importance of metallurgical studies when it comes to your projects? Yeah, it's back to what you were asking about before when you were referring to how interesting it is that automakers are coming into this space and moving into upstream companies. So what that means is that even though we don't have a feasibility study, we can take our core that we've drilled and bring it to different labs, which we have done, to determine a number of things. The characterization of that graphite, so what is the flake distribution? Are there any deleterious elements? What is the spring back? Is it nice and tight? Can it absorb the heat properly or the charge? Those things are very important. And then the next step is, can you purify it to get from a concentrate of, say, 95% to 99.9%, which you need for anode? And what we've done is we've determined both of those things successfully. We have a very good graphite, low in iron, low in sulfur, highly amenable to the battery industry, number one. And number two, that we can purify it with an alkaline process. And that's also something that the battery manufacturers want to see. The next step for us is to do more testing around the spherinization, so the milling and the coating, as well as larger samples. And what we're finding is that battery manufacturers are now willing to invest in and pay for tests exactly as I've just described by shipping samples to them directly. So very interesting because we're going directly to the end user, the customer of our product to determine where we are. And then we, when we have that information, we can have a better roadmap to developing the project specifically to meet their expectations. Excellent. So it sounds then like this is possible from your product and the way it sounds like this is all a a doable proposition then in terms of making this happen. It does. And I think, you know, we are a people first company. We want to be an operator of choice in Quebec and wherever we work, which means that we are EcoLogo certified in Quebec. We're only one of 17 companies. And what that does is it tells investors, it tells the community that we have a third party verifying how we do our drilling, how we're set up with our corporate governance, that we have all the right processes in place and how we manage contracts, safety and environmental stewardship. So that is an important piece. And to your point about all the right ingredients, we are in the Grenville graphite belt. So all of our peer companies are located here. It's no surprise that all the graphite companies that are moving forward are in Quebec. It's because that's where the natural flake graphite is. That is the best available product for the battery manufacturers. Excellent. So as we close, what is your takeaway for investors? What do you want them to know? I want them to know that we are dedicated to creating value for all of our stakeholders every day. And the way to do that is to keep moving forward on the vision, which is to say that we're going to move forward our projects and make them ready for the customer. We are going to look at bringing in strategic investors to help advance an accelerated model, a consolidation of graphite projects. And that we are working well with our First Nations to make sure that they understand what they have as in terms of prospectivity, 
and graphite and becoming part of a climate change success story. That's really what we want to aim for. And we recognize that communities will have a lot of questions and, and challenges in terms of, you know, opening up projects and mines in an area where they have cottages and so on. But that's really the future that we need to be thinking about here. We need hundreds of mines in North America to really create a new energy supply chain here. So we are a team that can get that done. I couldn't agree more. Well, Belinda Labatt, CEO and Director of Lamico Metals, thank you for joining me on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thank you. It was great to be here. Look forward to coming back. And thank you once again to Belinda Labatt and Lamico Metals for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Turning to the website, we have an essay by Courtney Onstad, Better Geoscience Communication Can Solve the Mining Industry's Image Problem. This should be read and listened to because in a lot of ways, this is the source of a lot of what ails this mining industry. Let's take a closer look. It's on northernminer.com, PhD student in the Department of Earth Sciences at Simon Fraser University, studying geoscience communication in BC, won the 2021 Northern Miner Scholarship, part of the YMP Scholarship Fund Awards for this essay. Okay, so we can't read the whole thing, unfortunately, but let's just take a quick look, give you a preview of what this essay is talking about. Society perceives mining as an industry aimed at pillaging the earth for its resources with no regard for the environment and the people it impacts. However, most earth scientists, especially young professionals, entered this industry because of their passion for the earth. Before we continue, that is a profound point. I mean, what industry is better positioned to be stewards of the earth than geologists, right? So she is making that point quite succinctly. Let us continue. By no means is our industry perfect, but over the past few decades, we have seen many positive advancements in our industry. Stronger environmental regulations, increased stakeholder engagement, adoption of environmentally friendly mining practices, and an awareness of importance of critical and green energy minerals to Canada's clean future demonstrate our desire to evolve. Unfortunately, positive cases like these are not shown in mainstream news. It's kind of back to this news theme. Instead, conflict-oriented incidents are featured and impose a strongly negative view of mining. With that said, what is the solution? How can we showcase the positives our industry has to offer? The answer is simple. Geoscience communication. Rooted in science communication, geoscience communication informs, educates, and raises awareness of geoscience among non-experts. Outreach, public engagement, K-12 educational resources, professional development workshops, geotourism, geoheritage, policy engagement, and knowledge translation are common approaches to communicating geoscience. I propose several options for engagement with public audiences to address our image problem. It really is what it comes down to, isn't it? Education. Education, education, education. Continuing on, the first opportunity for educating citizens on geoscience topics originates in the K-12 education system. Were we talking about this with Stephen Stewart? I think we were. Young students entering universities are eco-friendly, but perceive the mining industry as harmful to the environment. This stance is likely due to media coverage, misinformation, I want to add parents, and the absence of earth sciences in their science curricula. As a result, we are losing out on a cohort of young green scientists who don't consider mining a worthwhile career. 
I do think parents are missing here and, you know, not to point the finger at parents, but I mean, I think that's really where most of this is coming from. However, if educators receive proper training and are provided tactile, societally relevant and curriculum tied educational resources, they can inspire young scientists to join our industry. Instead of explaining our industry's importance when defending ourselves in media, when a dispute arises, why don't we look upstream and tackle our image problem at the source? That would ensure the public receives a holistic understanding of our country's current issues and how our industry can overcome these problems. We can gain public support by improving our engagement and using targeted communication. There are also many venues for informal education across Canada, with a significant presence of museums, national and provincial parks, geological surveys, sites of geological wonder, and online platforms. Okay, so education, education, education. I'll let you read the whole thing at northernminer.com. Let's just scroll down a bit here. It is excellently written. It is very clear, concise, and to the point. The hallmark of good writing. It doesn't drown itself in lingo, which is always appreciated over here. Yeah, geoliteracy. And then finally, just her last line here, and I will let you read the whole thing at northernminer.com. In this age of misinformation, it is time to support geoscience communication and its ability to unearth Canada's resources and their role in driving our economy and national security. Well, Courtney Onstad sounds ready for a political career as much as a career in geoscience communication. We are trying to get her on the program, actually. I just reached out to her. A great idea by our editor-in-chief, Alicia Hyatt. So we will see if Courtney comes on the program, because that sounds like it could be a very important conversation. Continuing on to other news, business as usual, despite military coup, Burkina Faso miners say, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Uh, Cecilia Jamazmi is the writer here. Miners in Burkina Faso say operations have not been affected by spreading social unrest. Following an internal coup d'etat over the weekend that saw the country's president, Lieutenant Colonel Paul-Henri Sondaogo Damiba, overthrown after only nine months in power. The change of leadership in the second military coup of the year appears to have its roots in a disagreement with the Burkina Faso military on security issues in the north and east of the country. Those areas have been hard hit by Islamic-associated terrorist insurgencies in recent years. It sure is a hot spot. So in a sense, this kind of political turmoil is not a surprise. National security, it's sort of like people don't think about security until it becomes an issue. And when it becomes an issue, it's the only issue. The nation's new military leader, Captain Ibrahim Traore, said on Sunday the country was facing an emergency in every sector. Quote, from security to defense, to health, to social action, to infrastructure, end quote. And it was time for the government to, quote, abandon the unnecessary red tape. Interesting. And some of the companies that are in there are West African Resources, Endeavor Mining, and I Am Gold. You can read the whole article on northernminer.com to get their reactions. Pretty interesting story. Didn't really make the mainstream news, did it? I didn't realize there was a coup till I checked out the Northern Miner yesterday. Turning to a Bloomberg article via mining.com, U.S. coal prices climb past $200 as global energy crunch boosts demand. So, you know... The irony continues as we push green policies and use more coal than ever. U.S. coal prices surge past $200 for the first time as a global energy crunch drives up demand for the dirtiest fossil fuel. Spot prices for coal from central Appalachia rose to $204.95 a ton for the week ending September 30th, the highest in records dating to 2005. According to data released Monday by the U.S. Energy Information Administration, 
Coal remains a leading fuel in U.S. power plants, and the soaring prices will ratchet up pressure on U.S. homes already struggling with record-high electricity bills. About 20 million households across the country, or about one in six, have fallen behind on their utility bills, according to the National Energy Assistance Directors Association. One in six have fallen behind on their utility bills. Yikes. Coal prices began surging as economies around the world recovered from pandemic lockdowns driving up demand for electricity faster than coal miners and natural gas producers would boost supply for power plants. That was exacerbated when Russia's war in Ukraine upended energy markets and power plant demand for coal and natural gas has continued to rise amid record summer heat. Meanwhile, coal producers are running at full tilt and have little ability to boost output. Even if they could, clogged supply chains means they would have trouble delivering any additional tons. All of that is putting steady upward pressure on prices, which have surged to records in U.S., Asia, and Europe. And finally, silver price hits six-week high on safe haven buying. It's by Mining.com staff. The silver price surged almost 9% on Monday as improving sentiment drove the metal price to a six-week high. December silver prices were trading at $20.48 per ounce. Monday afternoon, up 7.5% on the day. Gold also extended its rally, supported by a continued decline in Treasury yields. Investors remain jittery about the impact of aggressive interest rate hikes after a slew of Federal Reserve officials last week re-emphasized their resolve to fight inflation. This is despite U.S. manufacturing data signaling that the U.S. Central Bank may not over-tighten monetary policy. And we have a quote from Federal Reserve Bank of New York President John Williams, who said in a text of a speech to be delivered before an audience in Phoenix, quote, clearly inflation is far too high and persistent high inflation undermines the ability of our economy to perform at its full potential. Tighter monetary policy has begun to cool demand and reduce inflationary pressures, but our job is not yet done. So those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. And turning to metal prices, let's first just take a look at the 10-year bond, which has dropped pretty dramatically. It's at 3.587%, so this is down 0.23% from last week, although in between, I believe it topped 4%. It closed at 3.96% last week, so now we're at 3.58%. And turning to our metals, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on October 4th, gold is trading at $1,707.62 per ounce. That is $72 higher than last week. Silver is trading up $2.20 at $20.82 per ounce. Platinum is trading higher at $907.63 per ounce. That is $68 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,269.85 per ounce. That is $220 higher than last week. So precious metals almost, except for gold, almost 10% higher other than gold. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is up $0.09 cents at $3.47 per pound. 
Aluminum is up a penny at 99 cents per pound. Lead is up 4 cents at 86 cents per pound. And nickel is down 38 cents at $10.11 per pound. Tin is down 30 cents at $9.41 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $23.26 per pound. And zinc is down 3 cents at $1.35 per pound. So zooming out, precious metals up pretty dramatically, in fact. Industrial metals mostly down except for copper, which is up 11 cents, and aluminum up a penny, and lead. Otherwise down. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have the Thought Leadership presentation from the Global Mining Symposium last week, Mining Exploration in Quebec, Why and How, and this is a user's guide, as I like to say, to mining in Quebec, especially if you are on the exploration side of things and are just starting out, this is your podcast. It features Jonathan Lafontaine, Mining Exploration Activity Monitor at the Ministère de l'Energie et des Ressources Naturelles, Christian Goulet, Pilote de Système, Ministère de l'Energie et des Ressources Naturelles, James Moorhead, Resident Geologist at the Ministère de l'Energie et des Ressources Naturelles, and Vincent Frechette, Mining Engineer, also at the Ministère de l'Energie et des Ressources Naturelles. The panel is moderated by Northern Miner Senior Reporter Henry Lazenby, and it is a one-stop shop to know how to get started as a miner in Quebec. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. It's my pleasure to introduce our thought leadership panel, featuring a panel from the government of Quebec, Joining us today is Jonathan Lafontaine, the Mining Exploration Activity Monitor with the Quebec Ministry of Energy and Natural Resources. Christian Goulet, System Lead for the Ministry. James Moorhead, the Mining Ministry's Resident Geologist. Vincent Freshet, Mining Engineer with the Quebec Ministry of Energy and Natural Resources. It's a pleasure to have you with us today, gentlemen. Welcome. So let's start off the conversation by examining Quebec from a 40,000 foot level as an international investment destination, perhaps directed at you, James, as the geologist in the house. Would you kindly provide us with an introduction to Quebec as a mineral investment powerhouse, describing some of the mineralogical potential of the province and what that means in the context of the critical minerals and energy revolution we are witnessing at the moment? Quebec uh, has one of the best uh, geoscientific databases, which has been uh, noted as uh, such by uh, international uh, players. The large potential that we uh, have is expressed pretty much on a, a yearly basis on the discoveries that keep coming and coming, mainly for gold, actually, right now, as for many other jurisdictions, about 70% of exploration uh, expenditure are for gold. The discoveries keep coming and coming. Uh, projects uh, there are from uh, the grassroots level all the way up to mines that are almost permitted. And also we spend about 12 to $16 million per year on uh, the government service. And we think that this is an integral part for the success of these projects. For the points more for exploration, uh, Jonathan, you can fill in for uh, that basically where we're going. 
Well, sure. Well, um, exploration obviously is is one of the key items that uh, that we're interested in stimulating. So, as my uh, my colleague James said, the government of Quebec. You know, annually sends out survey teams of geologists to uh, to update our maps and to keep them present. And you know, of course, we also interact with different exploration companies because, as James said, discoveries that are being made they sometimes turn the geology on their head, and and we have to understand what exactly that means and and is that reproducible somewhere else in the province. And so, what my uh, my colleague was referring to is we're very active in the field, and we also are very active in in distributing this information. So we have a an interactive map. We have a, a set of online databases, all of which are free to use, free to download. The idea is that we want to distribute this information as much as possible, as easily as possible, to various exploration groups. Exploration that is done on fundamental principles need good data, and and that's what we strive to do. We strive to deliver that good data to give you the sound start of what an exploration company could have. All right. Well, we'll return to that discussion in just a few minutes. So while I have you here, Jonathan, as the Mining Exploration Activity Monitor, if I translate your title directly, could you perhaps give us a bit of an insight into the level of exploration activity in the province at the moment? How does that compare to other regions in Canada at the moment? That, that's a very good question. So yes, yeah, so we do monitor, of course, all the exploration that happens in the province as sort of a, a general idea. Right now we have, uh, and, and my other colleagues will probably attest to this, we have well over, if I'm not mistaken, 220,000 claims that are active in the province. That covers about 6% of the territory. So there's still lots of room. There's still an incredible vast space to explore for in the province. In 2021, in terms of exploration and uh, development expenditures, we're on the order of about $964 million. That's close to a billion dollars in exploration and development expenditures in the province of Quebec. And of course, that covers various commodities. Quebec is one of the most diverse uh, commodity bases in, in the world. You know, we have 22 active mines and they, they run the gamut from gold, iron ore, nickel, copper, and of course, lithium that's coming on stream again. Quebec used to be a lithium producer and now is, is regaining that, uh, that, um, that role. Niobium, rare earth potential is very high. So really with, with this very wide active resource potential, various commodities that are discovered everywhere in the province, you know, exploration activity is very high. With respect to other jurisdictions, I think if I'm not mistaken, it's one of the jurisdictions where the expenditures are the highest in Canada. So we're very happy to see all this exploration activity in the province, and we want to keep that momentum going. It's one of the key milestones, one of the keystones of developing the uh, mineral potential of the province. Yes, exactly. That segue is nicely into my next question. It's time to put Vincent a bit on the in the hot seat. Um, so... It's one thing to know that there are mineralization in the province, but then it's the next piece to developing it and actually extracting it that's important. So Vincent has been helping companies navigating the regulatory process from exploration to extraction. Vincent, can you please tell us a little bit more about the regulatory process involved in obtaining approval for a mining project from the exploration to the opening and closure phases, please? Yeah, sure can. Let's start with the exploration phase. 
you know, that first under the uh, Quebec's Mining Act, developers must obtain a uh, exclusive exploration right, which is called a claim from the MERN before searching for mineral substances on a specific parcel of land. In the case uh, that land is private, it's good to know that a claim holder must obtain a written authorization from the landowner at least 30 days before going onto that land, just as they uh, must also inform the municipality and landowner at least 30 days before work begins. But of course, they must uh, comply with uh, the provision of the Environment Quality Act and obtain the uh, necessary authorization and permits. The same as for the other legislation that may also apply, such as for wood cutting. But one important thing also is that the claim uh, holder must provide the MERN with the financial guarantee for certain type of advanced exploration work, but not all of them. The thresholds are listed in the regulation, but those work uh, would be such as a dewatering, a ramp, or uh, going with a bulk sample over the, then 500 tons. So those work with the, the claim holder would have to submit a uh, rehab plan before uh, starting these, uh, these work on the field. And starting from there, going to the exploitation phase, in the event of a, a discovery, the claim holder that is willing to go forward with his project must obtain a mining lease under the provisions of the Mining Act. And that lease application has to be accompanied by three main documents, which are a land survey of the area, an economic and market opportunity study for processing in Quebec, and the feasibility study of the project itself, of course. And other than the mining lease, suppose that the, there is a, a planification of development and structure not covered by the mining lease, such as a tailing pond or a waste rock dump, they claim uh, older, must fill an application for land use, for public land use. So the whole uh, operation on surface is covered with rights. Before applying for mining lease also, they uh, must fill a rehab plan, uh, the rehabilitation and restoration plan. And that plan must be made available to the public at least 30 days uh, uh, before the actual public consultation. But one important thing to remember regarding the mining lease is that it cannot be signed until the mine rehab plan has been approved and that the authorization certificate has been issued under the Environment Quality Act. In other words, the, the mining lease is the last piece of the puzzle, but uh, don't worry about it. We'll help uh, the claim holder solve that puzzle. That's a part of our job. <laughs> That's uh, keep in mind that the mining lease would be the last permit before going on to development and operation. And I can just finish up with, uh, I'll wrap this up with the mine closure. There's the financial guarantee that goes for the uh, closure of the mine site that is required. And the 50, well, the guarantee must be paid in three installments. And the first payment, uh, which represents 50% of the uh, guaranteed, must be made within 90 days of the plan's approval. And each subsequent payment, which represents uh, 25% each, must be made on the anniversary of the plan's approval. So within less than two years and a half, the guarantee uh, will be paid in full, but that's within two years and a half of the plan's approval. Well, that seems like a, a pretty you know, involved process to get a project going <laughs> from exploration to mine. So what is Quebec's government doing to improve its legislation related to the mining industry? What initiatives mm. is the government implementing to streamline and reduce red tape for miners? 
Yeah, just like you said, it's important to let you know that exactly the our government is really committed to reduce the red tape to all industries, but each year there's a bill table at the Quebec's parliament to decrease administrative burden to all industries, but including the mining sector, but that is of course without lowering or environmental standards. But yeah, we're really committed to that indeed. And so I suppose this also helps to shape a more attractive business environment for foreign investors. Could you possibly give us an example of that commitment, Vincent? Sure. As for foreign investor, well, I like to mention that in Quebec, all investors, whether Canadian or foreign, are treated equally. But as for an example of that commitment, in order to faster the permit issuance for mining activities, our government has created a so-called coordination office about three years ago. And through this office, we aim at ensuring a better management of timelines in issuing permits and optimize the exchange of information between proponents and departments. And there's um, actually four projects going on through that uh, coordination office. And there's one of them, the first one is kind of an important one, is the... Um, establishment of interdepartmental tables that makes it possible to offer the mining promoter a personalized support that is adapted to the regional realities. And of course, through this, we're going with the optimization of permit allocation processes that is underway, such as getting rid of steps without added value and reducing administrative delays. We're also developing a web interface for filling documents relating to requests for rights and permits governing mining activities so that ultimately all documents and requests could be submitted at one specific drop-off. I think that would be a really good added value for a process. We're also doing, um, it's, it's called a project of coordination of Aboriginal consultation, and it mostly aims to improve the government coordination between departments issuing rights in other words, where that is in order to avoid the multiplication of a consultation to an Aboriginal community regarding the same project, which can lead to uh, well more conflict and more delays. So uh, I think that's a win-win for everybody. So if I just sum up, the key takeaways is that the Quebec government is proactive in helping mining companies succeed at their projects. Quebec wants mining. Yes, yes. And uh, maybe I can just wrap it up with the coordination office and how it works a bit, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. Well, through that coordination office, uh, like I told you, we, uh, we've put in place a customized approach with companies to secure and accelerate projects. And this is mostly done at the regional level where most of the uh, authorization and permits are issued. And I feel that this way of doing helps proponents to know, you know more about their own roadmap and uh, different governmental uh, requirements and it also helps us to see uh, what's coming on our side and allocate more resources consequently before, uh, you know, like spending too much time on a mining lease request and uh, wasting a few, a few weeks of the timeline. For example, just yesterday, I went on a exploration site up north and I met with my colleagues from other ministries. And the exploration company there gave us a tour of their site and we had a look at the bulk sample operation going on there. And afterward, we sat at the table and we discussed the next step and the permits needed. It allows us to make sure that everyone's at the same page, all the ministries and the, uh, the government. It sure helps the company move their project forward because we all work with the same information on the real time. I really feel that mining companies so far seems to really appreciate being part of that uh, coordination office process. And I keep hearing good comments about it. You know, and, and 
promoters just have to request such a, uh, a service and we're, we're provided to them uh, gladly. Okay, well, thank you very much for providing that detail. Let's turn the conversation over to Christian and uh, who is managing the cadastre system. Christian uh, Kubik uh, has this very advanced mining title management system all digitized. Would you please tell us more about how the mining titles management system is conducted in Quebec and how juniors and explorers can use this and benefit from the system in place? Uh, yes, Justin has been online since 2000. Since then, pretty much all of our forms, apart from a couple ones for the management of mining titles, those is mostly computerized. People can access Justim 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. All of this is, is, is in real time. There are two main uses for Justim. The first one is consultation of the public register of real and immovable mining rights of Quebec. People can consult mining titles by doing descriptive searches and also consult uh, the interactive map, which contains uh, many layers of information such as uh, mining titles, agreements with First Nations, surface mineral substances, uh, mining sites. We also provide information coming from CGM, which is the uh, geological uh, information. And uh, there's the second, the second component of Justim is the transactional component, which contains forms like uh, map designation, where uh, companies, prospectors, pretty much anyone can go online and acquire claims by map designation. They can also do the management of their titles through Justim, such as uh, claim renewal, work declaration form, annual reports of uh, material extraction, and uh, delegate the manager for uh, the, their titles. Uh, we tend to um, make more forms available in the upcoming uh, months and years to have a complete uh, electronic service offer. And uh, behind Justim, there's the internal system that is called uh, ODM, which stands for Octroi de Droit Minier, Granting of Mining Rights. It serves as the tool for the analysis, processing and rendering of decisions on uh, requests affecting the register. And uh, part of that is the electronic register that allows when conditions are favorable, automatic processing and uh, granting of claims. This allows a significant reduction of uh, processing time. Okay, so that's another initiative by the government to streamline the mining process from start to finish. Yes. Um, is it really that easy to use the system? Is it true that anybody can use it? And perhaps could you give us some more details? You know, What does it cost to really hold a claim in Quebec and are there any conditions involved with holding claims in Quebec? To acquire claims, anybody can do it. You just have to register to Justim and you have to log in. Then fill out the form of map designation. Uh, you go on the map and select the parcels of land you're interested in. Then it costs around 50 to $60. It all depends on the uh, surface area. So uh, it costs around 50 to $60 per claim. Then when you... Uh, uh, when you get your claim, it's good. For the first period is now three years. Until the last December, it was two years. But uh, the new uh, the new modifications in the Mining Act extended that to three years. And then uh, the subsequent periods were, are uh, two years. For these three years, you have to do uh, field work. So uh, there's an amount of field work you have to do to, to, to fill for each claim, uh, which is uh, around... Uh, Depends. Uh, 
it's around a thousand dollars. You can fill out with work, or you can uh, pay the double to uh, renew the, that claim. Okay, that's very insightful. Thank you very much. So let's talk a little bit more about the data acquisition programs, James, that you are managing. This seems to be a very substantial uh, benefit of doing mineral uh, geological business in Quebec. The province makes available to the public free of charge substantial set of early stage geological data that uh, we know several companies actually actively make use of to generate new projects. Could you please share with us some of the information on how the province funds its data acquisition programs, what they entail, and at what frequency these programs get undertaken? Over to you, James. Okay, uh, to start off, uh, everything is available uh, free of charge uh, on uh, the website. So you can download, query pretty much uh, anything you uh, want on the interactive uh, map. So uh, I'll just go over briefly all the type of surveys that we do on a yearly basis. So that would include the quaternary bedrock uh, surveys at different scales, high quality, geochemical, uh, geochronological uh, data. We've been doing for the last three years, physical properties of the collected samples that would include in city uh, uh, magnetic susceptibility. And uh, we're also very proud to, for the uh, high resolution uh, airborne uh, surveys that we do that are done at a 200 meters uh, line uh, spacing. We will cover all of Quebec probably in the next five years. We've started to do high density lake bottom uh, as sediment surveys. That would be uh, one sample per uh, square k kilometer. We've been starting to do that. That'll be a long-term uh, process. Right now, there's a data for the whole province that's that, that at a scale of one sample per 10 to 13 square k kilometers. We also fund a whole series of uh, MSc PhD uh, projects up to uh, $1 million per year. So all of this adds up to 12 to $15 million per year. We've been doing this since 2010. We're doing it before, but since 2010, we think this distinguish ourselves is this is, this is a stable uh, funding source. It comes from a specific fund and uh, the funds come from uh, the mining duties and taxes. So it's not the yearly provincial budget, which can go up and down depending on government priorities. So it's a very stable uh, budget. This allows for a predictable long-term uh, funding of these projects. And also we'd like to add on that what my colleagues have also said, uh, for the last uh, three years, we've optimized the report process. Uh, now every service that's done on a yearly basis is published within the next year, which wasn't the case before. Now everything is published pretty much on a 12 months yearly basis as we go forward. And all of this is available uh, free on the line. Uh, the reports are now called Bulletin uh, Geologique. And uh, again, it's uh, free of charge on the uh, interactive uh, map. Okay, that's very interesting. And it certainly seems like a unique piece to the story in comparison to other Canadian jurisdictions. Could you tell me, with the emergence of new technologies and new scientific processes, are you working to expand the scope of these surveys and to add new layers of data? We're trying to basically complete what we've already started, which is quite a, bit, a lot, which we added that we're been going forth with the, uh, the gravity service, which I didn't uh, 
mentioned, we've been starting that for two years now. And uh, we're currently doing three pilot projects to see what the data will add to the existing one. Lake Bottom has sediments, which I did mention, uh, done at a very different scale, a much more denser scale, which will allow for better uh, land planning uh, uses also. We have the mandate, uh, the Quebec mandates that uh, a quite high percentage of the land will be put aside for parks. We want to do basically these type of uh, surveys beforehand to know the potential of uh, the area. Also, uh, rock physical properties, uh, that'll be uh, collected. We've been doing that for two years now. That will uh, basically allow for much more constrained inversions of, uh, of the uh, geophysical data sets that, that we make available. Now, practically speaking, can you perhaps point to some recent discoveries or, or perhaps older discoveries that are currently in the development phase or actually in production as a direct result of use of these data sets that the province puts out? I would point to the James Bay uh, area, not to one specific discovery, but the whole uh, area. Uh, we started going back there uh, at a big scale in 1995, and you can uh, track exploration expenditures basically following these uh, surveys. Some of the survey, uh, the Edelnard uh, mine in uh, the James Bay uh, area is pretty much uh, sitting right next to one of the biggest uh, arsenic uh, lake bottom uh, anomalies uh, in the, the province. I'm not saying that was the only criteria that was used for this discovery, but it was part of it. So basically, we tend to look at this thing from a whole where we tend to do the surveys, the uh, high density surveys, exploration companies use this data uh, to further their own uh, projects. Sir. Okay, that's very interesting work. So Jonathan, I wanted to circle back to you and specifically with your involvement with the discovery originally of the Matush Uranium Project. Uh, it was indeed billed as one of the greatest discoveries in the province for uranium back in the day. However, the project has stalled due to local opposition. And uh, while most of our conversation has been about how good it is to conduct exploration and mining development in Quebec, there are obviously some cases uh, where mining is not welcome. Could you perhaps just please talk a little bit about, for instance, this specific example where this great discovery didn't go through to production in Quebec because of opposition and how that translates to perhaps, you know, investor confidence in investing in Quebec? That's, that's a good, it's uh, a very astute question. What I'd like to say is, well, you pointed to one example, of, of a project that had uh, local opposition. Um, and one of the things to highlight is that Quebec, just like a lot of other jurisdictions, has structured the, uh, the regulations to sort of reflect that there has to be a social license that the promoters develop. And that social license is in good part due to the promoter's activity and the promoter's desire to connect with and to interact with the local communities in which they, uh, they operate. Since that event, Quebec has, has uh, started various, has enacted certain uh, parts of legislation in terms of, of uh, reacting and, and being able to, to go forward with the communities to help, to help work with the promoters to be sure that they are addressing the correct communities. So the Minister of uh, Energy and Natural Resources can help promoters connect. Obviously, the ministry won't do the work in lieu of the promoters. The promoters have to do their own uh, their own their own work to get in touch with the communities. 
And you know, we, we've seen many uh, other projects since that have worked with communities that have you know, realized that, yes, we do need these communities on board. And there have been several success stories that have come out of this. You know, some of the uh, the graphite mines that are maybe a little bit closer to the communities in southern Quebec, they have very closely worked with the local uh, municipal authorities to try to say, hey, we're here, we have a project, this is our project. And uh, they they have accommodated when when projects might not, you know, work well with the community for various concerns, such as, uh, such as noise, such as overnight operations might not be welcome in certain communities. And some of the promoters have reacted very quite, quite openly to these, uh, to these comments and, you know, have, have continued their discussion with these communities. So it's something that uh, Quebec is not, is not the only jurisdiction in the world that has taken steps to be sure that social acceptance and the social license is part of the framework. And the ministry is active in, in trying to help promote and connect promoters with communities, with certain groups, to be sure that they, they're in touch with the, uh, with the correct people. And it's, it's sort of baked into a lot, of, a lot of the help that we give is, have you connected with these communities? Are you currently seeking for stakeholder approval, not just shareholder approval? And, and uh, I, I think that the reality in Quebec is the same as the reality elsewhere. And promoters in Quebec, just like promoters elsewhere, have to uh, engage with the local communities. I, I hope that answers the question. No, it certainly does. And I believe your comments are just so much more pertinent given the context that we're on the eve here of National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. The social piece remains such a critical make or break uh, component of any mining story anywhere in the world today. All right, so that's all we've got time for for this session. Uh, that was a panel from the Quebec government outlining plenty of reasons why Quebec remains a top tier in mining investment jurisdiction. Thank you very much, gentlemen. And there we have it, another episode of the Northern Miner podcast in the bag. I hope you enjoyed that. I mean, for all you prospectors out there that are trying to figure out how to get started, there is a vast space to explore in Quebec. And here, they give you the websites on where to go to get started. So you don't have to be anybody special. You can be anybody to get started. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. Until next week, take care.